Welcome back, everybody. Part two of the Atlanta Child Murders. She's, Scott she's is, trying. Scott is ready. To bear with I us. am struggling. Yeah. I'm bearing with everybody. It It's a sleepy afternoon when we're recording, but good Wednesday morning because it just dropped <laughs> to all of you. Early happy 4th of July to everyone. Happy 4th of July to everyone. Yes. My name is Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. And so this weekend, I did something, Scott, that you have done before. Uh, I boldly went where you had gone before. Bowling? No. I emceed a theater center show. How was it? It was fun. Yeah, it is fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, you Christmas did the Christmas show. show. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I just did the uh, singing into summer. Okay. Show that the, see, the theater center put on last Friday is it's a I fundraiser, did. right? Uh, no, this was actually a show. Okay. It wasn't a fundraiser. The okay. Christmas one is a fundraiser. This one was a show All right. because we got behind with COVID, and so we had to add a show. And how was it? There. it? It went very so well. So who was there? The, the usual suspects. I mean, uh, Jeannie was there. Oh, and yes. um, uh, Jeannie Hatmaker, uh, Jeremiah Wheeler. Jeremiah. Tony O'Neill. Oh, Tony. I, you know, I did I not know Tony could John. sing Andrew until we Jones. did the Christmas show. Senator Andrew Jones was really? there. Really? Yeah. Uh, He's does, a very talented pianist and singer. I did not singer. know that. Well, yes. good for him. I know. Yeah. Well, so uh, we had a great... A great crowd. We had some young folks there, and and they were singing too, and it was fun. I can't sing, so I get jealous of other people who can at those things, and so I usually just go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm very sad that we had to miss it. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, as I understand it, um, Scott, I'm giving you fair warning. Uh-huh. I think they're going to want us to share the responsibilities in December. Oh, that's fine. I don't care. I'm good I'm, luck with that. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> it, it would probably. I'm, I'm wishing you luck in having to deal with me. This it, it could be fun. You and me, we could play off each other and, and tell jokes and make fun of each other. I've already got a couple of jokes in mind. We'll keep those. And to I yourself. just learned. Oh yeah, I'm going to save them until the show. Keep them to yourself. Yeah, I want you to be as surprised <laughs> as everyone else. Oh great! Wow, <laughs> I can't wait for that. Uh, what else is going on? Do we have anything else going on this weekend that would that it would we need to talk about before we jump into this? There is two? a shout out that I have. Okay, <clears throat> but I forgot where I wrote it down. Right. So I will look it up over the course of the show, and we'll mention her at the end. You didn't send it to us, so, and so I know I forgot let this to do that. Be a lesson to you all, listeners. Mm. You know, you should probably email us or give us that five star rating, and then and then you know, make a comment because if you just talk to Scott, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) There is a, I'll find it. It's in my notes somewhere. 50 shot. Did your shout out? Well, actually happen. At least I remember that there is one and I I will find there is one. So shout out to mystery person. She is the person who texted me last week. Okay. And told me that she knows the guy in Piedmont, Alabama, which is about 20 or 30 minutes from here, who owns the car that Wayne Williams was driving the night he was arrested on the I-285 bridge on May the 22nd, 1981. Not arrested. I'm, I'm sorry. He was stopped. And yes, he was pulled over and uh, questioned by authorities. So that car is in Piedmont, Alabama right now. That's what this young lady told me. And I reached out to the person. I did not hear back from him. But if I can get in that car at some point, I'm, somebody's going to take a picture of me. He's probably thinking, oh, here's another one. 
Well, then yeah, someone else will have to take a picture because that iPhone six that you're holding doesn't do. It's much. an eleven. Good Lord, what just because is that? it's a small phone. <laughs> That's the tiniest phone I've ever seen. I don't want an can, iPad in my back pocket. I can read all of your texts though right now. Oh yeah, yeah. You got your text font. messages pulled. Okay, out that's not small. true. I, I do not have it on them. the big font setting. Are that you is sure? that is not accurate. If you say so. All right, whatever. <laughs> Start the damn show, can we? Do you think you need it on the big font? I don't because when I take my glasses off, I can see up close. Oh, so Which is, is why that, I'm not wearing my glasses. Is that now. nearsighted or farsighted? I I'm never know. Farsighted. So that means you see better far away. No, I'm, I'm farsighted means I can't see far away. Is that what that means? Yes. I never. It's know. ass backwards. Gotcha. At least as far as I know. I mean, I have no idea. I've been wrong before. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that joke's never old. <laughs> never. Not yet. Although it, it may be to the listeners. Anyways. So while Scott is working on that shout out, Katie, you got a trip plan coming up? You got uh, something you're doing? Actually, yeah. Let me get in your business here. I do. Headed off to the beach. Well, if this drops on Wednesday, I'll, we're headed out tomorrow night. Okay. Little girl's so trip. I'm not, I am not at all bitter about this. This is, I believe, the third trip of yours we've talked about, and I've gone on zero. Shane keeps being like, but I'm not I think, bitter. I think I've went somewhere like every month for the yeah. past several months. Yeah, yeah I've, I've I've been on one trip mm-hmm. uh, this summer, mm-hmm. but we worked it around our mm-hmm. recording schedule. Yeah, I'm so I bitter. haven't been the pain in the ass that she has been. I know. I'm not bitter at all. It's okay. Yeah, I don't up need your sarcasm. a. I don't need a damn vacation. <laughs> <laughs> no, like not at all. Not like with that attitude. <laughs> Yeah, but we are looking forward to the 4th yes. here in our area for the 4th of July is a busy time because of the lake. We have a lot of people who come in to town from mostly from Georgia. Our out of town individuals, I think, are mostly yeah. from Georgia. Atlanta area, I'd say. Because it's just right down the road. And then, you know, we say we have traffic, which people would laugh at. But I mean, <laughs> but with the traffic in the road small area. Yes. Why are we working on the road right now? Yeah, a now? lot of road construction going on in Cherokee County. They're paving the bypass. They are working mm-hmm. on, uh, what's the other, uh, they're working over in Cedar Bluff in a couple of places as mm-hmm. well. And so, yeah, it's just, in front of Walmart. Yes. Yeah, There's so a lot of construction here in front of Easy Street, the Easy Street yeah. campus here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most busy travel time of the year here and in our town. A lot of road construction. I'm sure there is a perfectly good reason for that. I no. just don't know what it is. I'm assuming it's got something to do with the weather. They had just assumed it's drier. that the long days, the drier weather, they can get more done in a shorter amount of time. And if you've driven down the bypass in the last couple of days, they're really making some progress. I mean, they've, they've got yeah. three or four of the lanes mostly done, it seems like. They've just mm-hmm. got to run down the middle and do the turn lane and put the stripes on, and we're, we're back to normal. Yep. Yeah, Except for in front of Walmart. Yeah, that's a separate project. Yeah, which is going to be going on. That yeah, is looks yeah. like that one may take a while. Mm-hmm. Alexandria Robertson is our listener from Piedmont. Hello. Who told me about the gentleman who owns the 1970 Chevy station wagon. Nice. Okay. Thank he you, used to belong to Wayne Williams. Yeah, so thank, thank you, you Alexandria. Go, go online and give us a five-star review and drop write your name a, once more. Yeah, write another <laughs> comment and we'll shout you out again. Yeah, otherwise it's never going to happen again. <laughs> It was so hard to get this one done, so... It was more trouble than it should have been, and I take the blame for that. Oh, of course you do, as you should. I was going to get it anyway. (laughs) Right, right. All right, so here we go. When we left off last week, Mm -hmm. we had just heard the splash in the water, and they had pulled over an individual by the name of Wayne Williams. Yes. And 
then what happened? Well, so that happened on May the 22nd of 1981, and he was pulled over after, just to go back a tiny bit, they had started surveilling the bridges in Atlanta because this case had been going on for well over a year at this point in in the summer, the spring, the late spring of 81, and they weren't really making any headway in the case. And so they started towards the end of April, they were going to spend one month surveilling the bridges. They, they, they found some bridges in the Atlanta area that they felt like might be a place where someone would be able to dump a body. Uh, and sadly, they were right. It was the last day they were going to stop the program the next day. And so on May the 22nd, it's a, I think it's a Friday morning, uh, three o'clock in the morning, the police recruit who is down, the way they did it, they put a, a police recruit down on the ground, on the bank, under the bridge. And then on either end of the bridge, there would be FBI agents in cars. Everybody has their radios. So if something happens, they can shout up to the guys in the cars and they can pull over this person if something weird happens. And that's what happened on the last day that they were going to do this because they were running out of money. They were spending a lot of money trying to get to the bottom of this Atlanta child murder thing and a month of this and they were going to try something else. But they pull over Wayne Bertram Williams, age 23. He's 5'7", about 170 pounds, a pudgy little guy, light-complected, African-American. Uh, he's wearing a baseball cap. He's got the afro that was in style at the time. So according to Jack Mallard, who was one of the assistant district attorneys who prosecuted this case, they were allowed to search his car. They looked inside and, and saw some things. And there was, conspicuously, there was a two-foot section of rope like a nylon rope that you might find on a, if you were a skier here in Cherokee County, that sort of nylon rope. They, they did not, they didn't have a search warrant. They just saw that in the car. They just saw it in the car. They talked to him for about 90 minutes. Then they went over to his parents' house uh, and looked around. Again, they're still waiting on a search warrant. That month in between the time that they pulled him over on May the 22nd and the time that they actually arrested him on June the 21st, I believe, there was a lot going on there. Uh, they felt like they had a good suspect. But there was a lot of discussion about whether or not they had enough evidence to ask for a search warrant or, or to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of discussions. At some point, the federal government gets involved, uh, depending on which source you uh, put the most reliance on. The FBI gets involved. There's a lot of pressure on the folks in Atlanta that they put on themselves. They want to get this case over with because it's Atlanta's, the name Atlanta is being heard all over the world and not in a good way no. because their kids are dying. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of impetus to try and get this case over with. And their citizens are angry. Very. You know, there's, there's a, Very. The, the moms of some of these kids have formed a group called Stop. Uh, to try and pressure the Atlanta Police Department to do more to get to the bottom of what's going on. So I don't know. I, I was around back then, but I was 10 years old or 11 years old. I wasn't really watching it from that perspective at the time. So I don't remember how challenging that might have been for them. But in this month between the time Williams is pulled over and the time he's arrested, he gets put on what is called bumper lock surveillance, which means that every time he leaves his house, the Atlanta Police Department is following him to see where he goes. And he can see them. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're right on He He figures it out pretty fast uh, mm-hmm. that, that something that he's being followed. 
Uh, and he knows he's a suspect. I mean, at this point, it's pretty obvious that he's a suspect. At some point, they bring him in for questioning. That's on June the 3rd, I believe. So a week or so goes by. They bring him in for questioning. He flunks a polygraph test. Whoops. Yeah, but, you know, that's not admissible in court. Right. The polygraph happens. He holds a press conference. Wayne Williams holds a press conference in his home the next day on June the 4th. He invites all the local media. And there's a couple of stipulations. He doesn't want his face to be shown during the interview. He doesn't want his name to be used during the interview. And so they, the local TV affiliates honor his request, at least for the duration of the actual shoot of this press conference, where he takes questions and they ask him about why he was stopped on the bridge. And one of the things that ends up getting Wayne Williams into a lot of trouble over the course of this investigation is that one of the stories that he was very inconsistent about over the time that he was being interviewed, all this multiple interviews, his story about why he was on the bridge that night kept changing a little bit. That would be easy. Why were you on the bridge that night? Well, I was driving from here. Yeah. Point A to point B. Mm -hmm. Well, he made it complicated. He had this story about how he was looking for someone. Now, Wayne Williams, what he's done, what he does for a living ostensibly is he's a talent scout. He's trying to come up with a group kind of like the Jackson five. He wants to get a group of black children that are talented and can sing and put them together and have, you know, the outfits and the, the synchronized moves on stage and all of these things. He's, and he's going to call this band Gemini. And that was in the FBI profile, correct? Yes. Now, how did they get that specific before they discovered Wayne Williams? I think that they just knew that they knew some things based on these FBI profiles that he was going to be someone who interjected himself into the case. Okay. He was going to be someone who worked strange hours. Okay. And one of the thing, the other thing that Wayne Williams did to make money was he had a police scanner in his car and late at night, he was, he was a night prowler. He, he was out, mm-hmm. he, he kept odd hours when there was a fire or a car accident or anything involving the police that he thought the news organizations might be interested in. He hopped in his car. He knows where he's going because he's heard this call on the police mm-hmm. scanner. Mm-hmm. And he sells those photos and those videos that he takes to the local mm-hmm. television stations to make money. So that's an and that's really, another thing that was in the profile. That's a really easy story. Why you're on the bridge? Well, he told a story about he was looking for uh, someone that he was going to interview the next morning, and he didn't know how to get to her house. Okay, this is at three a.m. and the meeting is supposed to take place at eight a.m. Okay, so one of the stories he tells is that he is looking for this person's apartment so that the next morning for the, he'll be on time. He'll know where he's going. Then there's a story that he tells his father about how he was dropping trash off the bridge. Dropping trash off the bridge. Yeah. So that's easy to, to vet. Well, you would think, I mean, they, they spent some time that very morning. They got the boats in the water and there's a helicopter flying overhead at some point trying to see if they can figure out because they think they've got the guy. They, you know, there's a splash in the water and you're on a bridge at 3 a.m. That's very suspect. And it turns out that a lot of the fibers and hairs in your car have been found, will be found on dozens, a dozen of the Atlanta child murder victims. So who did he throw? They don't know that yet. Who did this person throw into the water? Well, the last person who, the person who turned up uh, in the lake, I'm sorry, in the river two days later was Nathaniel Cater. C-A-T-E-R. And he was the 28th and final victim. Okay, so what they're saying is, we fully believe, FBI, cops, Mm -hmm. all that, that he pulls up on this bridge, he drops this final body into the water. Right. But what they have to do is, they have to make all of that 
fit perfectly. Yeah. And they don't know this for two days. So, mm-hmm. you know, they let him go that morning, that early, the early hours of May the 22nd, they let him go. They, they can't hold him. They don't have enough to, Correct. to keep him. But two days later, Nathaniel Cater's body turns up about a mile and a half downriver from that bridge. From that bridge. Mm-hmm. And there was another body that had turned up a few weeks earlier in that same area. So it was a dumping ground. It was, yes. Mm-hmm. That At least that's going to be the prosecution's argument. So now they've, that's more information that they have after they find Cater's body. And so that happens on, you know, in May the 25th or 6th. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how did the FBI know specifically that this person might be trying to form a band? Oh, I don't know that they were that specific that they knew he was going to be, but they just knew that he was going to be, he was going to be somebody who was invisible in the community. He was going to be a young person. He was going to be somebody who was media savvy. Okay. And, 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 okay. and, and Williams holds this press conference. Right, okay. the very next day, and he I, had been around. He had a TV. Uh, he had a radio station in the basement of his house, and it had okay. for several years. So he's he's familiar. He's media savvy. Okay, I just I, I guess I misremembered when we were talking last week about it. I thought that was part of the the profile that he was trying to. It may have gotten in people. It may have gotten into specifics that mm-hmm. reached that level. I mm-hmm. don't remember specifically right okay. now what it said, but I mean, it was it was creepy. If you read the the FBI yeah. profile after you read about. Wayne Williams, mm-hmm. it's creepy mm-hmm. how much they got correct. And we've we've read FBI profiles on mm-hmm. this show before and talked about how spot on yeah. it really is. Yeah, I mean, you know, some folks say it's junk science and some folks say you can't uh, put a lot of weight on these profiles, but at the same time... But they can rationalize why, the why behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we believe he is African-American. Why? Because of the community that this is happening in. Right. A white guy is going to be hard for a white person to, to, mm-hmm. to kidnap mm-hmm. a black child. Oh, and that was one other thing from the profile. They felt like he would be somebody who was very familiar with the way that the police operated. And mm-hmm. bingo, here we go with somebody who's got a police scanner in his car. Mm-hmm. He'd been arrested in 1978 for impersonating a police officer. Wow. He had a car that had, a, it was a former police cruiser that still had the lights in it. Mm-hmm. And what was he doing? What, why was he impersonating? I, I did not get into okay. the specifics of why that happened or how they found him, but he was cited. And I think maybe it got tangled up in the court system and, and they threw it out. But he mm-hmm. was, uh, he was cited at least once for impersonating gotcha. a okay. police officer. Right. So that's just another thing in the profile that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. This guy knows how the police operate in Atlanta. Right. So, so that happens. Uh, we get to the 21st of June and finally, Katie, you jump in here at any time because we're after that press conference, it was just a really weird situation. Everybody's thinking, why is this guy calling a press conference? It makes no sense. So they don't use his name. They don't use his face, but by the, by the, by the evening, everybody knows that it was Wayne Williams. Everybody knows his address is 1718 Pimrose or whatever it is. So there's now there are TV station cameramen camped outside of his house at all hours of the day and night. This is about the time that the bumper lock surveillance begins. Mm-hmm. He's driving all over town, trying to outrun cops, trying to time the red light so that they get caught at the red light and he can keep going. These kinds of things. This is how they end up getting a warrant to search his house because one of the things they write down in the, in the request for the search warrant is we're, we're surveilling this guy. And he's, he's a danger on the roads. We're worried that he's going to cause a crash or hurt somebody. I mean, they're just pulling stuff out of the air at this point to try and justify a search warrant. Mm-hmm. And so they get it. 
eventually, I think it was on June the 3rd. Uh, no, it would have been uh, after that. The 4th was the press conference. Anyway, they get into his house. They start pulling up carpet fibers. They realize that that's going to be this trace evidence. There's not a lot of direct evidence. No, there's, there's no eyewitness to any of these crimes. There's some cir- circumstantial evidence, mm-hmm. but they, they already know they feel like this is going to be a case for one of the first times in history, if not the first time, where trace evidence is going to be the, the vital factor that if this person is guilty, that's what puts him behind bars. And so when you talk about trace evidence, you're talking about the carpet fibers, mm-hmm. dog hair, those kinds of things. Yeah. Another term that they use for the trace evidence is pattern evidence. Okay. Um, because it's the same evidence that's found on a dozen of these children. And it's the same evidence that's linked to Wayne Williams. Mm. Yeah. What they tried to do is they tried to establish, you know, like I said, we don't have the direct evidence, some circumstantial evidence. What we're trying to do is establish an environment, a common environment that all of these victims were in. And the one way to do that is with this trace evidence, the, the carpet fibers and the hairs. And one of the things that at least 12 of these victims have in common is the very same fibers that were found in Wayne Williams' house and in his car. Okay. As Scott mentioned, there are news people camped out at his home. And one of the main things that the police want to do, they when they finally get the arrest warrant, they don't want they don't want a big circus. They want to try to take him with without all of that. So they go the, the, so the early morning hours of June 21st, 1981, uh, they they go to arrest Wayne Williams. There's no resistance, anything. They take him pretty quietly. He's quickly arraigned and he's denied bail. He sits in isolation in the county jail for nearly six months. Wow. Because, Mm. yeah, as soon as the task force made him their only suspect in early June, uh, the sheriff's office began building a special wing of the jail meant only to house the Atlanta child murder suspect. Goodness gracious. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. So, uh, the purpose of this wing was to prevent him from escaping, of course, prevent other inmates from killing him because they had heard that a hit mm-hmm. was put out on the suspect. Mm-hmm. I bet. And uh, to prevent him from killing himself. Mm-hmm. So they, didn't, they wanted him to go to trial. Mm-hmm. They wanted everyone. The community had been such an outroar. They wanted this trial that, mm-hmm. and they were going to get it. So six, about six months later, January 6, 1982, trial begins. And the trial actually progresses quicker than most would today. Six months, and we're already at trial, is unheard of. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, it's that's, usually years, right, wow. before you get it, that mean, far down the road. Honestly, they, years, yeah. they Motions and hearings, and yeah. They, they wanted it over with. this process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and his attorneys were unseasoned in this type of trial. So they didn't file that many pretrial motions or briefs, and uh, they let the pretrial hearings proceed with very little objections. And they didn't have a whole lot of money to hire experts and investigators, so they, they really didn't. The prosecution hired some experts and investigators, so the only people we were waiting on in that aspect were from the prosecution, not the defense. They didn't fight for a change of venue, which is a normal thing, mm-hmm. especially with something that had this much media attention. They believed that he would get a fair, a fair trial in Fulton County, and they believed that he had a better chance with a jury that would be from. Uh, what is predominantly black Atlanta, as opposed to going into one of the surrounding rural counties and getting a more predominantly white neighborhood. Okay. So when the jury was chosen, it, it, you know, we, we've got 12 people here, eight black and four white. 
uh, nine women, three men. Okay. So, so what they didn't want to do, they wanted to stay in Atlanta, like Katie said, where it's a predominantly black population, because there are a lot of folks in the city of Atlanta at the time who don't think, and to this day maintain, that Wayne Williams did not do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, but at the time, though, as a defense attorney, it just seems like the thing you would want to do yeah. because the city's been so angry. Mm-hmm. They've had to build a special wing for this yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. And it it just and it, the PR hit know. the city has taken for the last two years. Yeah, I mean they're I, ready. I don't understand not wanting a change of venue. I mean, I kind of do, but I kind of don't at the same time. I can see their reasoning. I can see what they're saying on why they said why they didn't. But I would have requested a change of venue. I think I would have too, because you know, in hindsight, we know now that there are a lot of individuals in this area who still, to this day, believe that he is innocent. But mm-hmm. at the time, did we did we know that? Is that is that more hindsight or or? I think there were some. People... I, I think Yusuf Bell's mother, Camille, she always maintained that they had the wrong person. So she's from even from the get from the get go. People are. And she shouting. was the one who was instrumental in in starting up that uh, the group stop. Right. To uh, pressure the Atlanta what Police was Department. The, what was the reasoning behind why did she think they had the wrong person? Uh, I just don't think that she ever believed that this person was capable. I don't. I, I never saw an interview with, with Camille Bell where she explicitly laid out her reasons why she didn't think it was him. Mm-hmm. But she was adamant from everything that I ever saw that they've got the wrong person. Okay. There's one and sequence. He's a, he's a young guy. Mm-hmm. He's a small guy. Yeah. He's he's got a baby face. Yes. So he looks like a child himself, really. He doesn't look like a murderer. Yeah, he doesn't look. Like and I don't someone. know how much you know emotions and. That well, kind I don't of thing know. Play. I don't. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about many different murderers on this podcast, and they all look. That their looks vary. I guess is what I'm trying yeah. to say. There's not a specific. Word. Sometimes you look at him and go, "Oh yeah, of course he did it." And other times you go, <laughs> "This guy, come on." Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, the jury is sequestered. Okay. And they have very limited access to media or anything. That's like that. a that's a great idea, I would think. Try, uh, which being sequestered was kind of difficult. The trial did last eight weeks. Ooh. And the trial judge was selected at random from a computer program. Okay. But that judge ends up being Judge Clarence Cooper. Okay. And at the time, to the defense, it didn't feel random. Mm-hmm. It felt pointed because he was the first black judge elected to the Fulton County bench. But he was also a former prosecutor who served alongside the DA, Jack Slayton, for many, many years. Uh-oh. So, so they it, were thinking, oh, dear, home field, they have home field advantage and we don't. Yes. Okay. Then the prosecution... They start to talk about motive. You don't, I mean, of course, motive is not required in order uh, to get a conviction, but it usually helps in a lot of cases because it pulls at the jury. Yeah, I would definitely say it helps. It, it explains why this happened. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Maybe. And so profilers were brought in. We've spoke about profilers a lot to establish said motive. They believed he had an animus towards members of his own race. They based this theory on statements that Williams had made over the years. And the fact that most of the murders were done very intimately. I mean, literally hands-on. Strangulation, asphyxiation, mm-hmm. one stabbing. So when you but, say animus towards those of his own race, what are we talking about? Well, I, I think the way I read it, and Katie, you, you correct me if I get this wrong. He felt like that a lot of these kids, and he says it in the press conference that he holds on June the 4th at his house. Mm. 
he he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically, these kids are out at all hours of the night. Their their parents aren't keeping an eye on them. They're poor. They're black. They're in the city. They're they're prime picking for someone who wants to do harm to them. And so one of the things that I would say out there to all of you people in Atlanta is do a better job of taking care of your kids. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of the sense of he, he doesn't like poor black kids and this is a black person. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Who doesn't like poor black children. Okay. So he's thinks they're bringing down, he's middle class. His parents are teachers. They've got Mm -hmm. a nice house and a nice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. He, Spends a lot of time out late at night driving around looking for these crimes so he can video them or photograph them. Mm-hmm. And he sees these kids running around. And it, it just makes him mad. He doesn't like yeah. them. And he says it repeatedly. Wow. And then they start turning up missing and he's, that's a motive. Is that a motive? That's right, Katie. That's yeah. what they're going to argue. And well, and it sounds like he's, at the very least, not sympathetic at all right. to what's happened here. And that's a terrible at look. At least. Yeah. If I'm his attorney, I'm thinking, Crap. Yeah. Keep your damn mouth shut. Don't have any more press conferences Don't in your house where you again. say these things. Right. Right. Okay. All right. They also believe that there was a sexual component. Uh, they think that the murders could have been committed out of a sense of sexual frustration, a combination of that hatred of his own race mixed with some repressed uh, homosexuality. Mm. They... As much as they wanted to talk about motive, they still knew that the crux of their case would be the actual physical evidence. So, in a turn of events, the judge allows physical evidence from the other Atlanta child murders to be used in court. So, there are 19 different carpet fibers taken from Williams's white station wagon that were matched to those fibers found on 12 of the 28 victims. So, we're talking about a dozen people here. And he, and that's the pattern. That's yes. the pattern evidence that, that they she's have, talking they've about. They've just linked him to, correct? Right. I mean, is that a safe statement to say? They have linked him yes. using yes. this evidence. They, they have linked, well, they have linked, that is the same type of carpet fibers. And I'll get into that mm. in a, more deeply in just a second. Mm. So, so he, yeah, that's weird. They don't charge him for those 10. Yeah. They only charge him for the two bodies that were found downstream from that I-85 because bridge, 285 had, bridge. They also had mm-hmm. him being on that bridge right. and the splash and all of that. So when he was arrested, he was only charged with the last murder with Cater. So okay. yes. Yeah, so to clarify, he is on trial for two first degree murder charges. One for Nathaniel Cater, the man Scott talked about that they found. Who is not a child. No, he was 27 or 28. Right. And Jimmy Payne, who is like 23. Yeah, he was an adult as well. Ironically, the two people he is on trial for are not children. That's another reason why Camille Bell is screaming at the top of her lungs. You've arrested this guy. You say he killed our kids. Then charge him for it. Yes. Mm. And that's just the, the, these irate okay. mothers and yeah. parents, they don't understand that. Right. Well, I don't either, but let's go ahead. Yeah. Oftentimes, that is, it is, it is a thing. Prosecutors often undercharge. Well, I, I, I yeah, you're right. I get that yeah. because you don't want to slap 28 charges and then 
then he gets acquitted. Go in and you're like, oh crap, you know. Yeah. You want to you want to try these two, and then yep. maybe more things happen. Right. They say, and you can li- and you can try him for two others, but you can only try him one time for one murder, yes. one person, yeah. right? right? So that's your strategy. I got yeah. it. And they say, you know, if we can get him off the streets for life, well, he's off the streets. Let's for just life. go ahead and do it this way, okay? But still, to these mothers, that's that doesn't feel like justice to them. It doesn't, all. but you know, the, the 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 district attorney has to work within the system of the law. That's true. And so he's going to pick the two strongest cases that he has. And in this case, it's these two adults instead of these children. But they allow these other, they allow the evidence from 12 individuals, two of which is we are on trial for and 10 others. How common is this that they allow that? Not. It has been done before. Okay. But it is not a common thing. Wow. Okay. Gotcha. And, Forensic experts testified after this, and this is where I was getting with the fibers. The fibers that they found were from a specific carpet manufactured in Dalton, Georgia from the years 1967 to 1974. So, bear in mind, we're in the early 80s now. Mm-hmm. DNA evidence and forensic evidence and everything is not how it is today. So, we're, you know, they have found these carpet fi- fibers and they know that they're from a specific carpet. Specific carpet that was manufactured. They don't, that's that's where they're at. So there is a one in seven thousand seven hundred and ninety-two chance of finding a similar carpet in the Atlanta metro area. Okay, so it's not you know a a, a sure bet that these are the same exact carpet fibers, but it's a and this this particular carpet fiber that. Katie's talking about is is unique in some in several ways, and one of them is the color. The other is the shape, and so they're able to very specifically find, just like she spoke about where it came from and when it was made, mm-hmm. and that carpet was in was in all twelve of these uh, was on all twelve of these victims and in his white station wagon. So there's that establishment of that environment mm-hmm. that they would have had to have been in in the hours before they died mm-hmm. for all of these common denominators to be in place. Was this in his home as well? Yes. yes. Everywhere in the home or just the basement? The carpet on the floor, just- a throw rug in the bathroom, and the bedspread in his bedroom. Yikes. Yes. There are also hair and blood evidence. Now, remember, DNA profiling is not available at this time. Mm-hmm. There is blood found in his car. And the blood t- and blood typing w- was done, uh, and the blood taken from his car matched the type of several of the victims. There is dog hair found on Nathaniel Cater that is consistent with hair of a German shepherd, and the Williams family had a German shepherd. Sheba, she was fourteen. Oh my! Human hairs are also found uh, inside of one of the victims' shirts. That is consistent with a hair type of Williams. There are witnesses that the prosecution calls, of course. They testified to that Williams had strange and creepy behavior prior to his arrest. Some placed him with actual victims before their disappearance. His comeback to all of this is they're all lying. All these witnesses are lying. Uh, I'll go through a couple of them. One witness is named Eugene Lester. He's a friend of one of the victims, Jojo Bell. It's, it's, it's not, that's not one of the two men that we're on trial for, but a different victim. 
who was playing basketball with him the night before he disappeared and identified Williams as the man driving the white station wagon that Bell was last seen getting into. Okay. There are a number of witnesses that were called that testified that Williams was gay and that he had pedophile tendencies, I guess, meaning he liked liked young boys. Okay. I, I mean, that's just two separate things. I mean, mm-hmm. you can be homosexual. Yes. And not a pedophile. Exactly. I just, but I just feel like yes, there was a lot of that back in the day with these profiles, and even still today. Yes. And let's let's clarify that. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I think the pedophile tendencies comes from the fact that all, most of these are children that have been right. murdered, and they're found nude. That's another point we're going to yeah. get to. Uh, yeah. That's understandable. I just want to say, I just, I just yes. felt like. You just hear that a lot, especially with these older profile Yeah, we get back into the 60s and 70s and 80s and that one, to them at the time, one implied the other. Yeah. And that is disgusting. Right. Not true. Absolutely. Totally agree. So, one witness claimed that Williams once told her that he could, and I quote, knock out black street kids in a few minutes by putting his hand on their necks. (sighs) Hmm. Again, if I'm the defense attorney, I'm Wayne. Let's yeah. stop talking. But he said this before. Before, before he yes. was on trial anyway. So, okay. Uh, there's a kid named Robert Henry who said that Nathaniel Cater, he, he knew him through work, and uh, he saw him with Williams the night he disappeared. He said that he saw them holding hands. And that, and a little bit about Cater, he was known to be a bisexual and Sometimes he would kind of prostitute himself out to men okay. in order to supplement his income. He had no money. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, was doing doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was known to frequent a popular downtown gay bar where Williams is also said to have been seen at several times. Okay. So so that puts him in the same vicinity of a lot of yes, these and, and actually, you know, holding hands with one of the victims who's mm-hmm. a ma- who is an adult. Yes. Which is what he, who he, one of the victims is who he's on trial for. Yes. So all they're bringing all this in. I can. I'm starting to see why the DA wanted mm-hmm. to try these two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's got more. So we have a thing called victimology, which is where they're putting together all the similarities between the victims or, mm-hmm. or the majority of the victims, mm-hmm. and these these twelve that they're using this pattern evidence for pattern cases and pattern murders terms that you'll see interchangeably that all of these are uh black males okay most were children even the adults even those that aren't adults they're they're still young mm-hmm. everyone's under 30 mm-hmm. most of the children were um or most of the children were or, no sorry some of the children were kind of fit and athletic like but the adults were all short with small builds so the average size of the victim was below five six and under one hundred and fifty pounds, which is okay. William size or smaller. Mm-hmm. They're nearly all discovered nude, which profilers say and prosecutors say that they number one on that reason and is they believe that that was an attempt to eliminate physical evidence. Mm-hmm. They also believe that the nude bodies could represent a form of sexual dominance, uh, possibly that the killer had some kind of sexual activity with or near the bodies before dumping them. But I want to clarify, no evidence of that was ever found. Okay. All right. There's no... Physical evidence of anything. Gotcha. Okay. None of these victims owned a car. 
Okay. So it's like he preyed on their weaknesses and vulnerabilities, offering them rides, seeing them out walking, that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And that's an easy way to, mm-hmm. hey, where are you going? Especially if you've got a, a ride. you got a blue light in your car and you hit that blue light and say, hey, I'm a cop, get in. Yeah. Which is, mm. there's been some speculation yeah. about that. He's handing out those flyers to try and get people to come and join his uh, his boy band, Gemini. Mm-hmm. Another reason, hey, you want to make some easy money? Come on, let's go down to the studio. I will mm-hmm. turn on the mics and we'll, we'll see if you can sing. All of those are very easy ways to coerce someone into And a lot of these vehicle. kids were, they were street kids and a lot of them uh, were hustling for extra money. I mean, they were, there was one of the kids sold uh, car air fresheners mm-hmm. on the street corner. We talked about him last week. Mm-hmm. And Others ran errands. One kid stayed out in the parking lot to help people put their groceries in their car, and he disappeared mm-hmm. while his sister was inside buying groceries. Mm. So they, you know, they were they were living hand to mouth, like a lot of kids, unfortunately, still do today. But that was going on in Atlanta in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Nearly all of them were murdered in one location and transported to another. The and speaking of transported to another, now we have dump sites. So most of these dump sites were somewhat isolated, but still within the metro area. They were practical in nature, but could only be easily accessed by someone who could move effortlessly in the neighborhood. So with, you know, we talked about that, being able to get through the neighborhood without detection, without raising alarm. Um, by someone who was extremely mobile and well acquainted with every part of the city. They thought the killer would most likely be unemployed or have a job where he could travel a lot with the metro area. Um, And then, as we mentioned, the later victims were a bit older and they have a reason and they think for that. They think that was due to availability. They think the combination of the media pressure, community involvement, and curfews. So, Mm -hmm. it was out. The kids weren't out anymore. I was going to say there were less kids out. The kids were at home Mm -hmm. because they were scared to death. And that was a thing. I mean, they Mm -hmm. kids were afraid to go out or they left in groups. There's no more walking down to the end of the block to go to the store at midnight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it limited his pool of victims. So he was, you know, Mm -hmm. moving on up. Okay. But now we'll get to the defense. The defense is headed by a woman named Mary Welcome. Can't forget that name. She was a popular local attorney. She had a lot of access to people, but she and she did have some trial experience, but she had never tried a murder charge. Mm. And so this was her first murder trial. So she brought she brings in, she's got an assistant attorney named Tony Axum, who had more experience trying major crimes, but was by no means like a high-powered attorney. These were not big wigs. These were not were they hired by the Williams family or no. were they appointed? They're appointed. Okay. These are appointed. Public defenders. So, you know, we were just talking about the OJ case. He's got his dream team. It's even in the in the book that I used a lot, and Scott did too, uh, Child Killer by Jack Rosewood. Uh, he even brings up the OJ dream team and how Wayne Williams did not have the dream team. Nobody had that team mm, yeah. except OJ. Yeah. yeah, except OJ. And so... Nobody walks from a double murder charge either except OJ. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, sorry, too soon. My bad. <laughs> so, uh, Tony Axum at least has some experience trying murder charges. And, but right before the trial, Williams fires him. And they bring in... Fires uh, both of them? Nope, just just Axum. Keeps, Why? Keeps welcome. Why? We have no idea. 
He th- he brings in another attorney called Alvin Binder, named Alvin Binder. Okay. Um, Binder was described as caustic and confrontational and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they thought he got he 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 got along with that style better, or maybe he butted head some with Axum. Hmm. Uh, okay. Like, asshole is the word we're looking for. Oh yeah, for Binder. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, he. I mean, I, I saw just a couple of brief uh, video clips that he was in. Total asshole. Is that what you want in your? Attorney? I guess sure. I mean, somebody's going to be confrontational and not yeah. take it sitting down and right. Get up in your face, young man. Yeah. Hey, you get your damn hands off her. That's another movie for another time. But you know <laughs> that. All right, just cut that. The defense didn't call any expert witnesses to refute the fiber evidence or offer any alternative interpretations of the evidence. Well, it's like you said, they couldn't afford it. Right. Right? They they just had to take the, they had to do whatever they got handed with that physical evidence, with those uh, that fiber evidence, because they couldn't mm-hmm. rebut those experts. But, you know, they didn't also be like, hey, it could have got the fibers, of any of these 7,700 and whatever, you know. It, it's, it seems kind of crazy to me that they didn't even bring it up, but... Instead, they focused on the fact that none of it was 100% certain. They were like, okay. yeah, the evidence, you know, they say it's a good percentage, but it's not 100%. Trying to just create some mm-hmm. doubt. Create some doubt, jury. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They also uh, called into question the credibility of their eyewitnesses because, like, some of them were children, street kids, you know. There's a lot of research about children witnesses. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a, it's a big, long topic that we won't go down that rabbit hole, but... It turns out they're not very good mm-hmm. eyewitnesses. Well, I, I think, I, that doesn't mean they're lying. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're they're trying to be deceptive either. Right. It it's just they they're very what is the word I'm trying to say? It's easy to sway them right. mm-hmm. and coerce them. Mm-hmm. To say what yeah. Mm-hmm. To fit your narrative. Well and and we've talked plenty of times about how I mean one of the most unreliable things in any court case is eyewitness testimony. Yes. Whether it's a child or an adult or, a, you know, somebody, everybody's got an agenda. Everybody knows what they saw. How many times did you glance up and you, you thought you saw a, a blue bird sitting in the tree and you turn back and look again and you realize, now that bird was red this whole time. Or, I mean, that's or a terrible example. Or it wasn't example. even a bird. Or it wasn't even a bird. Mm-hmm. You know, people just, in a snap judgment, you see things wrong. And the, Well, you played that whole, we used to do these in class. And when you're in school in psychology, psychology that all these kinds of strange things things happen in class and one of the things is they would stage an argument so you'd sit down for class and uh someone would come in and just get into it with the teacher okay and then they would leave and then they would say now tell me what that person was wearing tell me all this about them it's amazing what you can't say yeah what you can't remember or you didn't notice Mm -hmm. that you just didn't notice because you're just caught off guard or Mm -hmm. you know and it was part of that talking about eyewitness testimony wow that was abnormal psych anyways that's a story for another day (laughs) well they also they did call some individuals who testified to williams alibis and the main one being his parents who said that they were with him the night that nathaniel cater was abducted Mm -hmm. um their main their main goal in their defense was to make the prosecution prove their case so doubt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I think that's a good defense, but these parents of, of Wayne Williams, so they have linked these 
carpet fibers, rug fibers, dog dog hair mm-hmm. with these victims. His bedspread. Right. At, they're they're saying that at some point in time, these victims or some of them were in his home. Yeah, he in could enter the room. house. He could enter the house uh, from the back and not walk through the front of the house. He had his own entrance to the house. Okay, and said the the parents never knew. The parents were convinced he did not do this, but they. <laughs> Did they say anything about him ever having company over? Did they know? No. If he could enter the home without them, enter and leave the home without them seeing him, mm-hmm. how are they good alibis for him? I guess is yeah. my yeah. point. Well, I'm exactly. sure in, in cross-examination, somebody possibly pointed that out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, okay. but yeah. certainly that would have been an argument that I would have made too. Mm-hmm. The defense's case only lasted a couple of days, but then Williams decides he's going to take the stand. Oh, Oh, yeah. So that extends the defense's case by three days. He is on on the the stand stand for three days. days. How much of that is cross-examination? At least the second day. (laughs) I mean, the the first day was was direct examination by his defense team, and then then the the second day was was the cross by the prosecution. Well, and the third. and Yeah, and I suppose the third as well. Um, He... He, like I said, he's, he makes that decision to take the stand. and I wonder every, if that's why he fired the first one. Maybe. Maybe yeah, the first attorney was like, you're, you're not going to take the stand. Mary Welcome was very pliable when it came to what Wayne Williams wanted to do. And in one of the, that HBO documentary, she said, you know, Wayne Williams was, he was impossible to get along. He was very hard to get along with. He was hard to love. Mm. Uh, and he was in charge. Wayne Williams thought mm. he was smarter than everyone else. Correct. Oh. Another... An, a narcissistic personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's Ted a Bundy, common denominator in a lot of serial yes. killers. Ted Bundy did the same thing. Right. Represented himself. He thought right. he was smarter than the prosecution, so he mm-hmm. thought he was going to get up on the stand and answer a few questions, and then no one would have any. And walk. Oh mm-hmm. my! And walk that, and go home that night. How did that go? Well, I don't think he expected to be up there so long. So the first two days, he keeps his composure, and he seems pretty passive and timid. Okay. He could even be described as polite Oh, and, okay. and quiet, because okay. some answers, he's so quiet, he's almost inaudible, and he's had to, he has to be asked to repeat them for the court reporter because they can't hear his answers. Mm-hmm. And on the third day, though, there's a drastic turn. Uh-oh. It's clear that he's frustrated and agitated. He is normal polite face turns almost into like a scowl. I mean, it's it's visible mm-hmm. that he is mm-hmm. a different person on this third day. And so people are thinking the mask has come off instead of just he's tired and, and frustrated and which could easily be well what it is. But others are probably saying, aha, we've pulled that mask off, it's right? It's funny that you say that because he's described as becoming unleashed at one point, he does shout to the prosecutor, in mm. quote, do you want to know the real Wayne Williams? You got him. Oops. Yeah. That was a plan by, are you going to do the, you going to tell him about Douglas, the FBI profiler? Okay. That was his plan. He suggested to the prosecution team, keep him up on the stand for as long as you can. Yeah. And keep, try and frustrate him. So what they did was mm-hmm. they kept asking him over and over and over once again about why he was on the bridge that night. That's one of the things they did to, to pester him like Katie's talking about. Yeah, because about. his story has changed about and this. And so he just, he starts to get agitated because he feels like they're asking the same thing over and over and mm-hmm. over. And, Which they are. 
on purpose because mm-hmm. uh, Douglas says to one of to Jack Mallard, one of the prosecutors, he says, "Look, at some point, I want you to walk over to him and put your hands on him, physically touch him." Oh my! Just you know, on the shoulder or whatever, and ask, "When did you panic when you strangled Nathaniel Cater?" Oh, that's objection. Wouldn't you object to that? And that's about the defense. Well, that's about the time that he hit the fan, like Katie just described, and said, "You want the real Wayne Williams? You got him now." But so they got the reaction that they well, wanted. Did his lawyer not object to that? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, oh, yeah, probably. I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, and I knew. I the cat's objection. out of the bag at that point. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. Okay. So he said, "You want the real Wayne Williams? Well, you, you got, got him." Mm-hmm. He refers to the prosecutor as a drop shot. Mm. Which is uh, apparently at the time like a slang word for like someone who wasn't worth much. Okay. Yeah, deadbeat. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, but the the piece of crap. exact terminology mm-hmm. at the time he says the words drop shot to this it's one to word. Mallard to this Mallard yes to whichever I think maybe it was the DA I think it was uh, Jack Slayton probably or it may have been Mallard yeah, at that I, point they they took turns so he just says you drop shot you're a drop shot or yeah. you're a whatever yeah. which okay. coincidentally. One of the witnesses had testified that Williams also referred to some of the children murdered as drop shots. That's a, that's a term he likes to use. So, yeah, deadbeats. I mean, that's, you know, we've already established that, that he thinks these poor black kids are beneath him. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously other people are beneath him, too. Yes. Yep. So, as his defense attorney, you're thinking, well, mm-hmm. do you just throw your pen in the air at that yep. point? Just- I think you do. <laughs> yeah, think Here so. we go. Because on February 27th, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, a verdict is announced. Mm. And he's guilty on both counts of first-degree murder. And no one in the courtroom seems surprised. No. Apparently, later on, his attorney says something along the lines of being surprised by it. but And she uses, like, specific wording that I didn't write down. But even Wayne doesn't seem surprised. She's just saying that. Yeah, you got it. She's not surprised. (laughs) And... His, the only person who even seems like upset is his father, mm-hmm. who, by the way, let's talk about is named William Williams. What? Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. William Williams. Does he go by Bill or Will? I, or I Billy? only saw him uh, referenced as William. Mm. William Williams. Yeah. Why? No. As he's walking out and he walks by the prosecution and he calls them sons of bitches. And then walks out. <laughs> yeah, says they William, railroaded his kid. William Williams does says William that. Williams. You know, you don't. I mean, that's not surprising that's, from a that's, father. That's who's, a mom and dad. I mean, that's upset. what parents. My kid couldn't possibly have done this, and they had. But and they've got to be just devastated by this. Well, as well. by all accounts, I mean, they'd had a perfectly normal life up to that point. I mean, he he was the only child. Mm-hmm. They middle class family. There's a picture at one point in the HBO documentary I watched he's sitting in front of the Christmas tree and it's just piled full of toys. He had a very normal, mm-hmm. reasonable childhood. So that's, and maybe if you're a parent and your kid's just been convicted yeah. of a double murder and you're like, what the, I and, didn't do anything wrong here. I raised a good kid. I did a good job as a father and, and a mom. not only these murders, they're, they're also talking about many yeah. children yeah. as well. That's, yeah, that doesn't shock me. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and I guess. And I'll run through a couple of things that happened after this, and then I'll I'll be done. But so, as Scott mentioned earlier, we fast forward to 2007, and they just had to do some DNA forensics, like some modern day testing on the original hairs and things that are found at the scene. 
to get some more accurate numbers. And the DNA testing on the dog hairs, they do they can do some uh, mitochondrial DNA sequencing, which is not the same as nuclear DNA, which is like you would know more about that. Not a doctor, I guess, but the mm. mitochondrial DNA sequence of William's dog occurred only the in the hairs that they found occurred in only about one out of a hundred dogs of that kind. So, so that they get, they, they get it pretty close. That's pretty convincing. 99% chance they got it right. And That's then, pretty convincing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, 99.5% chance. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the hair, oh no, sorry. Yes. And then the hair that they found, the human hair that they found, the mitochondrial DNA sequence of the ha- eliminated, eliminated 99.5% of per- persons by not matching their DNA. And it would eliminate 98% of black people by not matching their DNA. So, and it matched him. Yes. So Williams was yeah. not eliminated, I guess I'll say. So he was in that 0.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't eliminated. Yeah, it could not be crossed off the list. Mm-hmm. So, so he's found guilty of these two. He's found guilty. That is correct. He receives two life sentences. Immediately, they they sentenced him the same day. Right then. Mm-hmm. Boom. After after he's thrown a fit, and we've taken 11 hours to deliberate, and mm-hmm. then we're just going to sentence him right there. Peace and out. He still claims his innocence. And he gave an interview in 2010. Uh, he admitted that he regrets taking the stand. But he maintains that the prosecution, yeah, they made him look bad that day, but he never admitted guilt and he's not guilty. Okay. He also says, bottom line is, nobody ever testified or even claimed that they saw me strike another person, choke another person, stab, beat, or kill, or hurt anybody. Because I did. Well, that's true. That's all 100% yeah, that's true, true that nobody saw came nobody. forth and claimed that, he, that they saw him do it. But you don't have to have an eyewitness to convict somebody in an American court of law. You just have to have a mm-hmm. preponderance of the evidence. Well, let me ask you this. After he was arrested and he spent those months in mm-hmm. Yeah, from in June isolation, until uh, from June until January. How many more murders were there? Zero. Zero. <sighs> of course, if I am the if Wayne Williams is not the Atlanta child murderer and I am or whoever else was, mm-hmm. that'd be a good time to find something else to do. I'm going to say, see ya. I'm headed to yeah. Chicago. Yeah, let's let's go out to the West Coast. Or I'm going to go to, yeah, L.A. Or, mm-hmm. pee, yeah. like you said, peace out. Yeah. I, so. I skirted but past this. If, I'm you're, gonna... if you're still curious about this case, if we haven't filled in every single blank for you, go to HBO and watch a documentary series, a five-part documentary called Atlanta's Missing Children, I think it's called. You can yes. find it. It's mm-hmm. not too hard to, to come across. But it it deals a lot with the the resurgence of this case in the last few years. Uh, the the mayor, the new mayor at the time, I don't think Bottoms is the mayor in Atlanta anymore, but this Keisha Lance Bottoms was the mayor in the late 2010s. They reopened the cases again. I don't know if anything has come of that. But they talk about it in this documentary series, and there is this is really where you'll get a sense that there are a lot of people in Atlanta, especially a lot of the families of these black children who died, who do not believe that Wayne Williams committed those murders. And there are series of podcasts devoted to that. I'm sure there are. Well, all yeah. 28, that's yeah. probably, 
I would I would venture to say it's probably a stretch that he committed all twenty eight. But mm-hmm. the I don't it, think they're least, all as related as we think they are, right. and we'll never know, right? And so what that means is there's no justice for for everybody. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Well, that did not stop the city of Atlanta from just within a week of uh, Wayne Williams's conviction and sentencing to shut down the task force mm-hmm. and claim that twenty three of the twenty eight cases were now solved and even if you can go like to the wikipedia that's the same face i'm in you can go to the wikipedia page mm-hmm. for this and it will it has a, a graph that has all the victims names uh their manner of death and if it was attributed to him and closed or or not and so they they claim they closed 23 yes if it's attributed Out of to him they closed it so what about the rest well that's why when when Keisha Lance Bottoms became the mayor of the city a few years back, and the actually at the time the police chief was a female, and so they just kind of I don't know if they ran on this platform or not, but wanted mm-hmm. to wanted to give these families, hey, we're going to crack this stuff back open. We're, we have DNA testing now. We're going to send it off, and we'll let you know what we find out. I don't know what they found out. I don't know either. Yeah, but there was a concerted effort to try and are they trying bring for some closure the 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 other five or I, that just specific, all of them in general? That specific, no, I, I don't know. I, I think the ones that are attributed to him are, are, are closed. So they can't reopen. Can they, they can I reopen mean, You them. can reopen a closed sure. case, but I think they've, I, I don't think that they have. Well, what that means is there are still five of these that are unsolved. Mm-hmm. And the, as I far as we know, the question is what, what is being done about that? And I guess they're trying to do something about that maybe, but yeah. as, member if i were a member of that community or if nightmare living a nightmare that my child had gone missing and murdered i don't know that i would feel very good about five still being opened Mm -hmm. and then just saying well it was probably him but we can't prove it that doesn't sit well so that i mean i'm just saying that makes sense to me why yeah yeah people would feel that way. And, and technically you guys kept telling me 12 mm-hmm. that they kind of linked to the hair, the yeah. carpet. Well, the what? two that he was accused of, and then the 10 that they could tie together with the pattern evidence mm-hmm. where all of the fibers. So well, why did they the say murders? Why 23? Why are they claiming that 23 are closed? There was a lot. Some of that fiber was common to some of the others as well. And I guess maybe they felt confident enough after mm-hmm. the, the conviction had taken place on these two. And with the pattern evidence, to to go to connect some more dots and go okay well if if you if they believe this pattern evidence or this fiber evidence on mm-hmm. JoJo Bell then we can also tie it to well and mm-hmm. and the other the other victimology things that they had used you mm-hmm. know black children uh, discovered nude didn't own a car in a dump site yeah mm-hmm. if uh, you could if you could if you had if you have a box if you have if a grid I'm, and you can check enough boxes you can go okay that kid's but if I'm if I'm 14, no, I'm not going to own a car. Exactly. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Well, we're talking, we're not, we're, well, we're talking transportation, period. Like these kids okay. did have bicycles and they're found 15 miles from where they were last seen. Right. Obviously, they've gotten into a they car. They got with into someone. a car and rode with someone, is yes. what you're saying. Yeah. I got, I got that. I'm just, I'm just playing a little bit of devil's advocate yeah, sure. here yeah. to that. But um, I think you guys have done an incredible job on this. Thank you so much. I've she did all so the work much. this week. I've learned so much. Um, and, I think we got into a text about this. I don't remember exactly the day, but I said, mm-hmm. what does John Douglas think? 
Oh, the FBI you, profiler. And you said, what did you say to me? You you texted back. We were discussing, you know, is Wayne Williams guilty? Is is Wayne Williams innocent? And I said, what does John Douglas think? John Douglas thinks that he's probably good for 12 of these, but John Douglas is also quoted somewhere else as saying, the full story of the Atlanta child murders is very complicated. There's more than one perpetrator, mm-hmm. and it's a long story. Okay. So yes. and, that's and what John Douglas thinks. He's been around a long time. He's been yeah. doing this job a long time. Mm-hmm. He's seen a lot. Yeah. And we didn't even get into the whole... There was a secret KKK investigation going on for several months in 1981 that ended up finding no evidence that the KKK had been involved in any of these murders. But when that came out later, some of the parents of these children felt like they'd been lied to or deceived, that they didn't have, they'd been screaming, jumping up and down, the KKK did this. Well, the Atlanta Police Department looked into that, but they didn't find anything. But they also didn't tell anybody about the secret investigation that they were Mm-hmm. conducting it was very hush hush and it was and for good reasons because they they had informants they had uh yeah. people joining the kkk and they were wearing a wire to try and find out if they could hear that anything was mm-hmm. going on and you know it's like john douglas said in last week's episode you don't wear a white hood because you're looking to hide from public scrutiny so right anyway right. but that was a that was a kerfuffle a few years back when that all came mm-hmm. to light and that's in the documentary series you can see all about so we need it. To, we have homework. We're going to go watch that. Everybody go watch it's the really HBO good. documentary. Okay. It's, it's not bad. Everybody, let's try to figure out uh, in 2010 what actually happened when they reopened this case and, and what happened. I'm sure we can find a, a podcast to listen to or reference. Yeah. and Yeah, I'm sure some of those that you're folks. talking about mm-hmm. probably get have looked all into of that. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's Well, let's up. try that. But thank you guys so much. That was very interesting. What a tragedy. Yeah. I can't imagine dealing with this, being a mother, a father, and also Wayne Williams's mother and father. I just, I can't imagine what that feels like. That's It's, it's not easy for anyone. No, no. But thank you for all your research. Yep. And uh, it, do you guys have anything else other than telling everybody to check out our website? TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet.com uh, Yeah, send us an email at TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet at gmail.com Find us on social media. Rate, like, subscribe. All the things on all the platforms. All the things. We're on Facebook, too. Yeah. You can hang out there and talk to us if you like. Mm -hmm. And you can do that whenever you want because we're leaving now. Good night, everybody. I, just, I mean, that's just two separate things. I mean, mm-hmm. you can be homosexual, yes, and not a pedophile. Exactly. I just, but I just feel like yes, there was a lot of that back in the day with these profiles, and even still today. Yes, and let's let's clarify that. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I think the pedophile tendencies comes from the fact that all, most of these are children that have been right. murdered and they're found nude. That's another point we're going to yeah. get to. Uh, yeah. That's understandable. I just want to say, I just, I just yes. felt like. You just hear that a lot, especially with these older profile Yeah, cases. we get back into the 60s and 70s and 80s, and that one, to them at the time, one implied the other. Yeah. And that is...
Yeah. Disgusting. Right. Not, not true. Totally. Absolutely. Totally agree. Right. So one witness claimed that Williams once told her that he could, and I quote, knock out black street kids in a few minutes by putting his hand on their necks. <sighs> Again, if I'm the defense attorney, I'm Wayne, let's yeah. stop talking. But he said this before. Before, Before he yes. was on trial anyway, so, okay. Uh, there's a kid named Robert Henry who said that Nathaniel Cater, he, he knew him through work, and uh, he saw him with Williams the night he disappeared. He said that he saw them holding hands. And that, and a little bit about Cater, he was known to be a bisexual, and sometimes he would kind of prostitute himself out to men okay. in order to supplement his income. He had no money, mm-hmm. so he you know, was doing, doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was known to frequent a popular downtown gay bar where Williams is also said to have been seen at several times. Okay. So, so that puts him in the same vicinity of a lot of yes, these and, and actually, you know, holding hands with one of the victims who's mm-hmm. a mate, who is an adult. Yes. Which is what he, who he, one of the victims is who he's on trial for. Yes. So all they're bringing all this in. I can. I'm starting to see why the DA wanted mm-hmm. to try these two. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's got more. So we have a thing called victimology, which is where they're putting together all the similarities between the victims or, or mm-hmm. the majority of the victims. Mm-hmm. And these these twelve that they're using this pattern evidence 